we're in the middle of chapter 26 and we are learning about joy. And basically, you're gonna have to be happy, you can't be sad, class is over. So the guy is traveling on El Al Airlines and the stewardess comes by with food at dinner time and she said, sir, we're serving dinner. And he said, well, what are the choices? And she said, yes or no. Now, of course, it's not that simple as far as um, joy goes. Joy is much more complex than that. Now, why do we need joy? Why is joy so important? We said last class, or actually two weeks ago, as we, as we began the chapter, that joy is essential because without joy, you cannot win the battle of life. It's simple as that. Joy gives you energy. It gives you confidence. It gives you stamina. You cannot continue. You cannot fight the battle of life if you are not having joy. It's that simple. Now, you can say, well, what if I'm faking it? Two things. First of all, if you're faking it, that's fine. That's actually going to affect your inner behavior. But the other thing is, you ever heard the expression, you are what you pretend to be? It's not just that you are what you pretend to be. This is really who you are. When you're faking it, when you're being happy, even though you don't feel like it, you're giving expression to your divine soul, to your inner self that is a piece of the divine, it is a piece of light, it is a piece of happiness, and you're really being yourself. And of course, sometimes you don't feel like you're in the mood to be happy. So you know the joke of the guy who's driving on a horseback, breakneck speed, and a man is standing by the side of the road. He looks like he's going somewhere really important. He said, hey you, where are you going? And he said, I don't know, ask the horse. No, don't ask the horse. It's your choice to decide where you're going. You are in charge of your moods. As crazy as that sounds, you actually have the choice to choose your moods. Even if you're being suggested with a mood that you wouldn't like, you have the choice to turn down the invitation and say, no, thank you. I am choosing happiness. Choosing happiness sometimes is very difficult. Nobody said it's easy. Choosing happiness could be difficult, but it is your choice. It's not the horse's choice. So, We get it. It's really important to be happy. And even if you don't feel like being happy, you should be happy. But sometimes people don't, can't be happy. There's something that's grabbing their heart and stopping them from being happy. So the altar says true. There are two things that might not allow you to be happy. Let's look at those things. This is the first thing we visited last class. And that was sometimes you don't feel like being happy because... What if you don't have the basics? The basics are food, clothing, shelter, life, children's sustenance. And then we learn that there's another basic and that's joy. So you need to have food, you need to have clothing, you need to have shelter, you need to have joy. But what if a person doesn't have food, clothing, shelter? What if they have problems with health, God forbid, or problems with their family, God forbid, or financial issues? How could they be happy? So the altar said like this, You know what? If you want my advice on how to be happy, even when there's a problem with the basics, let's look at what the sages say. Open up a Talmud. See what the sages advise. Do you know what the sages advised if somebody is having such basic issues, something that's a misfortune? The Talmud says like this. A person should bless Hashem for misfortune with the same joy that he blesses for good fortune. This is not new advice. This is the advice of the sages. 
The sages in the Talmud advised that if, God forbid, a person is visited by misfortune, they should be happy the same way that if they were visited by good fortune. Now, this sounds wild. This sounds impossible. This sounds unfathomable. And yet it's true. And the Alter Rebbe explained to us what's the basic working principle behind this. This is what he said. He said that all of the universe, all of existence, gets its energy from the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton is the divine name consisting of the four letters Yud and He and Vav and He. Within the Tetragrammaton, there are two levels of divine influence. There is the unmanifest world, and that's represented by the letters Yud and He. And then there is the manifest world, and that's represented by the letters Vav and He. The unmanifest world is the world of thought. That's the world as though Hashem unto Himself. You know how it is when you're in your own thoughts? You're not suiting your thoughts to somebody else. This is strictly what's going on in your inner psyche. When do you start suiting the message to make it possible and plausible and to be assimilated well by the receiver? That's already the world of emotion, and that's represented by the letters Vav and He. So a person who is visited by misfortune, God forbid, should recognize that they were receiving messages from the unmanifest world. They receiving messages from the letters Yud and He. They were taken into Hashem's intimate space, into the world of thought. And from that place, because they were taken so close, that's why they should feel joy. So he says, look at your problems. Look at these, these things that are considered to be misfortune. Not only shouldn't a person be unhappy or sad, they should be happy. They should be joyful. They should be joyful that they were taken into Hashem's intimate space. And again, I want to remind everybody that this is not what we pray for. We dive into Hashem. We only ask for goodness and kindness that it is easily recognizable by the human psyche. That's the way it is. We don't ask for anything other than that. And that's because we have to remember, is it about us or is it about Hashem? If it's about the human being, then maybe they might want to pray for misfortune because they want to be accepted into Hashem's inner circle. But if it's about Hashem, then why were we put here? We were put here to transform this universe into a home for Him. And for that, we need good health. For that, we need good sustenance. For that, we need peace. For that, we need joy from the children. We can't have problems in our way. We need all this stuff out of the way so we could do our utmost in serving Hashem. So absolutely what we pray for is only for kindness and goodness that we can accept and recognize and goodness and kindness. This is only how a person views that which already happened to him. A misfortune that he already underwent, God forbid, or a difficult time that he is currently experiencing. While he is experiencing that, there's two things happening. On one hand, he has to be joyful. He has to recognize that he was taken into Hashem's inner circle. On the other hand, at the very same time, he should pray that Hashem should remove the difficulties from him so he can serve him in the utmost fashion with joy. So now getting up to here, we're going to look at what is the reward for those who, despite their suffering and despite their challenges, went ahead and accepted their sufferings happily, treasured their relationship with Hashem. We're on page four, if you printed out the booklet. Okay, and it says like this. For 
For this reason, our sages of blessed memory stated that the verse, those who love him, shall be as the sun when it comes out in its might. And this refers to the reward of those who rejoice in their afflictions. So we're speaking about somebody who went through difficulties, went through challenges, and yet they were so joyful and they were happy. They were joyful because they felt that Hashem was being very, very close to them. There was a reward for that person. They will, re- they will be able to accept the sun when it goes out in its full strength. So now we're going to have some questions about it. First of all, somebody who accepts reward, somebody who accepts suffering happily, why are they called the lover of Hashem? Question one. Question two that we have over here is, what reward is there in, in the sun going out in its full strength? And question three that we have is, how is this measure for measure? They showed Hashem, they are receiving the sun in its full strength. What is, how does this apply to the way that they acted, that they were happy even during challenges? Okay, so let's see why they're called lovers of Hashem. For one's joy in affliction stems from the fact that being near to God is dearer to him than anything of the life of this world. As it is written, for your loving kindness is better than life. So they're called the lovers of Hashem. Because this, this is what David HaMelech said. King David is running away from his father-in-law. Doesn't have it easy. His father-in-law actually wants his head. King Shaul, right? So he's running away. He's in the desert of Judah. And he's, he's praising God. And what is he saying? For your kindness to me is better than life. My lips shall praise you. So he's speaking about Hashem's kindness. What's Hashem's kindness? Hashem's kindness is the afflictions that he's showing to him. Hashem's kindness is that he's running away from his father-in-law. Hashem's kindness is that he's going through this anguish. Hashem is showing him kindness. He's giving him messages from the hidden, unmanifest world. And because he loves Hashem so much, he appreciates this kindness, even though it is the opposite of things that feel like life. So what is he saying? He's saying, you know what I prefer? What's most important to me is your kindness. Your kindness to me is better than life. Do you hear this? King David, who is going through affliction and suffering, he's, he's not getting mad. He's happy. And he's praising Hashem for bringing him into his inner circle. And he says to him, your kindness to me is better than life. Someone like him is called a lover of Hashem. Now, their nearness to God is infinitely greater and more sublime in the hidden world. For there is the concealment for there the concealment of his power is lodged. And it is also written, the Most High abides in secrecy. Both of these verses indicate that the hidden world contains a higher aspect of godliness than the revealed world. Since the hidden world is the source of a seeming affliction, he who loves God rejoices in it, for it represents a greater nearness to God than revealed could, which derives from the revealed world. 
So there's two verses that he quotes. One is from Habakkuk, and it says, Shem, Shem, Uzai. There, the concealment of his power is lodged. In the concealment, that's where his power is. And then again, he quotes from Tehillim chapter 91, and he says, Yeshev b'seser elyain. The Most High abides in secrecy. Where he is with Hashem is secret. And yes, the message that he's getting when it comes down to this world feels painful, but he's joyful in that. He's joyful in that because he was taken into the place of secrecy. He was taken into a place of where Hashem himself is. It's the unmanifest world. So two things I want to speak about here. One thing I want to discuss is why is it that messages from the unmanifest world feel bad? It's coming from such a high place. Why should it feel bad? It should feel good. So let's look at a lesson. Let's say there's a sage from the Talmud and he's giving a lesson. Brilliant sage, Torah scholar, the leader of his generation. And he is teaching his student who he cherishes. And this time, instead of teaching the student in order to suit his vessels, in order, instead of suiting the message to the student's mind, he says, you know what? I'm going to teach him what I know, the profundity of my wisdom, without mincing my words. I'm not going to diminish it at all. I'm not going to contract it at all. I'm not going to tailor cut the message. Whatever I know, that's exactly how I'm going to share it. So he sits with his student. Imagine it's Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar. He sits with his student and shares with him his wisdom exactly as he knows it. What happens to the student? It's not just that before the student understood the subject at 75%, and now that he got this profound message from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, now he understands it still at 75% because he understood nothing. That's not how it works. You know how it works? First, he understood at 75%. Then he hears the lesson from this great sage, this profound scholar, straight as he knows it, and you know what happens? He understands it now maybe 30%. His mind becomes confused and confounded. It's like the example of, we said last week, the sun. In order to see, we need light, right? The sun has so much light. What if we stare at the sun directly when it's shining in the full strength in the sky? We should have the best vision ever. If you had 15-20 vision, you stare directly at the source of light and now you should have 20-20 vision. Not how it works. You know what happens? A person has 15-20 vision, they stare directly at the sun and now they have 10-20 vision. Their vision is ruined. Why? Because their eyes were not the proper vessel to accept the, the bounty that was coming. The same thing, when Hashem sends messages to the hidden, from the hidden world, the created beings don't have the proper vessels to accept a message like that. So it's not just that they remain unaffected. It's that they actually feel pain. They actually get hurt. Now look at messages that people give each other all the time. One of the greatest problems, one of the biggest reasons for fights, probably the number one reason for fights, is miscommunication. A person says something and somebody else took the message wrong. A person was saying a message of love, doing an act of kindness, but the receiver of the message, the receiver of the kindness misread the message and they don't accept it as love. 
they thought that they were being mean. They thought that they were being harsh. They thought that they were being rude. But what if you knew? They, you gave them a chance. They said, one second, you misunderstood me. Let me explain to you why I did that or why I said that. And you explain the true love that was behind the message. Once you do that, they're happy. Wow, that was a message of love. They feel cherished. They feel special. Their heart is warm. So we need to understand that every single message that comes from Hashem, every single divine message that comes is always a message of love. We never ever have to second guess what was Hashem's intention in sending us a message. Sometimes a person understands a message and it feels very, very good. It feels like love. Sometimes a person gets hurt when the message comes their way. And they should understand that even when they got hurt, it was a message of love. And not just regular love, this was an exceptional, intimate message straight from Hashem. Very, very important to recognize that. And when a person recognizes it, then they can always be in joy, even if it hurts. They can understand that they should be joyful because Hashem sent them a message of love. And again, this is much easier assimilated intellectually than it is emotionally, but that's at least step one. Step one is recognizing intellectually that every message Hashem sends is a message of love. Therefore, he is found worthy of seeing the sun emerging in its might in the world to come when the sun will emerge from its sheath in which it is hidden in this world and then it will be revealed. So the Talmud tells us that in the future to come, Hashem will remove the sun from its sheath and the tzaddikim will gain benefit from it. What does it mean he will remove the sun from its sheath? I mean, generally speaking, we hear this expression in the Talmud before. Like, for example, when Avraham Avinu was re- recovering from his bris milah, Hashem didn't want him to have visitors. So what did Hashem do? The Talmud tells us Hashem removed the sun from its sheath. This is also a spiritual rep- representation of something spiritual. David HaMelech writes in Tehillim, Ki shemesh umagain Havaya Elohim. Because the sun and sheath are Havaya Elohim. There's the name of Hashem, Yudin Hein Vavin Hei, that includes also the unmanifest world. The human beings, or any beings for that matter, cannot accept its bounty and influence directly. There has to be a contraction. What's the contraction? The contraction is the name Elohim. The name Elohim is like the sheath for the sun. In the time to come, Hashem will remove the sheath and we're going to get direct influence from the name Havaya. At that time, the messages that come from the unmanifest world will be manifest in a way that we could assimilate because at that time, the world will be refined much higher level than it is now and we will be able to feel those messages as a way of good. But those people who previously, before they were suited to accept the messages as a way of good, in this world where we cannot accept messages from the unmanifest world, align their consciousness to the unmanifest world and were joyful in affliction even though it hurt, they will be rewarded that when the sun comes out from its sheath, they will receive beneficence from that revelation. Because they align themselves to this consciousness when it still hurt, when it doesn't hurt anymore, they will truly feel what they have accepted. 
This means that what is presently the hidden world will then be revealed and it will shine forth and glow in a great and intense revelation upon all those who seek refuge in him in this world, taking shelter in his shadow, the shadow of wisdom, which is presently in a state of shade as opposed to revealed light and goodness, meaning they find shelter and refuge even in that which represents an external appearance of shade and darkness, whereas the light and goodness contained in it is concealed. This is sufficient explanation for the understanding. So let's, let's look at the student who was getting his lesson from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, or from the great Torah sage. When he was not a proper vessel, when his mind was not well suited to the message, then he went from understanding the material 75% to 30% or less. But now what happens as the student minds develop? He grows in his learning, he understands better, and he takes the very same lesson from his teacher. Now, this lesson helps him. It doesn't confuse him. He no, not, doesn't even remain at his same level, level of knowledge. Once his mind has become refined, once his mind is sharpened, once he becomes more developed and intellectually mature, now when he hears the message, his understanding grows. He goes from understanding the, the idea from 75% to 100% or more. So that's what's going to happen in the time to come. Although originally the student was confounded, but yes, they felt joy. They felt joy in accepting such revelation from Hashem. In the time to come, when they will be refined and they will now be a better vessel to accept the message, now the message is going to help them. Now the message is going to be clarifying. Now the message is going to feel good and it will enlighten them. So we have the expression here, Tzel HaChachma, the shadow of Chachma. Chachma, like we learned earlier in Tanya, comes from the words kayachma, the potentiality of what? In the cognitive process, it's that flash of inspiration. Before you yet understand an idea, you get this certain flash. And they say, what did you get? What do you understand? Say, I can't even explain to you what I understand. I just know I have it. You don't really know what it is. Chachma is kayachma, the potentiality of what? When you see it, you say, hey, what is it? You don't know. So at this time, this Chachma comes as shade. It's called Tzel HaChachma. Shlomo HaMalach has the expression in Kohelas, Betzel HaChachma, in the shadow of Chachma. At this point, it's unfathomable. It's shade. We don't understand it. But in the future, in the time to come, we will understand it. So let's wrap up what we said until now, and then we're going to move on to the next section. Okay. So what we said until now was, that a person who undergoes suffering, God forbid, or physical disturbance and hardship should be happy. They should recognize that at that time they were taken into Hashem's inner circle. A person who is cognizant of that, what are they doing? They are choosing closeness to Hashem over physical life. They're saying they love Hashem so much that they cherish His kindness more than they cherish life. And that's indeed what David HaMelech said. He said, That means your kindness to me is better than life and therefore my lips shall praise you. He was praising Hashem for showing him kindness from the unmanifest world even though it hurt. And there is a reward for somebody like that. There is a reward for somebody who aligns his consciousness to the unmanifest world and finds joy in suffering 
because they are a lover of Hashem. They show that they love Hashem so much. And what is the reward that they get? That in the time to come, when Hashem removes the sun from its sheath, when the unmanifest world becomes revealed, they will receive its beneficence and they will receive its goodness in a way that feels good. Now we're going to move to the other reason why a person should be sad. Remember we said sadness basically stems from two general reasons. Either a person is sad because of physical concerns or they're sad because of spiritual concerns. When it comes to spirit, physical concerns, no reason to be sad. Not only is it not a reason to be sad, it's a reason to be happy. So like we said, you need food, clothing, shelter, joy. If a person does not have food, clothing, and shelter, they still need to have joy. That's just how it is. Totally cleanse the heart from worry. But now the other thing is, what about sadness from spiritual reasons? What about sadness if a person did a sin? That's a real reason to be sad. Because, like we learned before, Nothing bad descends from on high. So anything that comes from Hashem, automatically it's good. But then the Talmud tells us something. Everything is in the hands of heaven, except for the fear of heaven. So if a person sins, they took matters into their own hands, and they set up a partition between them and Hashem. And that's a real reason to be sad. By their own doing, they created a distance between them and Hashem. Sad, something that's bad, that's something that should not have happened. The only thing that should not have happened is a sin. And that's really a reason to be sad. Except the Altar Rebbe is going to teach us, even for sins, you cannot just be sad. You always, always have to be happy. We have to remember this guiding principle that happiness is fuel. A person has joy, they can do anything. If a person starts to feel sad, they become lazy and sluggish. They become incapacitated. They can't move. You always have to be happy. So when it comes to material reasons, that's not even a reason to be sad. When it comes to spiritual reasons, that is a reason to be sad. But even though it's a reason to be sad, you still have to be happy. So let's look at what the Altar Rebbe says over here. As for sadness connected with heavenly matters, one must seek ways and means of freeing oneself from it. So when he spoke about material concerns, he said, when it comes to material concerns, cleanse your heart. When it comes to spiritual concerns, that's not the terminology he uses anymore. Now he says, you have to find a way to get rid of it, to free yourself from it. Because you can't uproot it from the inception. There is something bad here. And nevertheless, you're going to have to find a way to divert your attention from it. You know the story that I told before, but I'm going to say it again because it's powerful, the suitcase story. So a man dies, and before he knows it, he's in the next world, and Hashem is carrying his suitcase. And he says, time to come, son. I have your suitcase. Let's go. And he said, my suitcase? What's in my suitcase? And Hashem says, it's your belongings. My belongings? What is it? My money? Is it my clothes? No. Your money and your clothes don't belong to you. So what is it? Is it my body? No, your body's not yours. Is it my talents? No, your talents don't belong to you either. Is it my family? No, you don't own your family. 
I give up. What's in my suitcase? What do I own? And Hashem looks at him and says, Son, what's in your suitcase are your choices. That's the only thing you own. So the only thing we own is our choices. And if a person made a bad choice, then that's truly a reason to be sad. And still, the Alter Rebbe says, you're going to have to find a way to free yourself from it. So, first of all, he's going, before he explains how to get rid of it, he's going to explain why you can't have it. Even if you want to be sad, if you want to have sadness, too bad. You can't be sad. And you can't have sadness. And let me tell you why. First reason. That, that this applies to the time of one's divine service, that's self-evident. For one must serve God with joy and gladness of heart. Okay, so if you're in the middle of prayer, if you're in the middle of learning Torah, you're in the middle of doing good deeds, and suddenly you feel sad. Nope, for sure you can't be sad during that time. We learn from Tehillim. If do as Hashem b'simcha, serve God with joy. That's a principle over here. And we learned at the beginning of the chapter what the Arizal explains about the Pasuk. Because you did not serve Hashem out of joy and gladness of heart more than if you had an abundance of everything. Whenever you're serving Hashem, you have to be happy. How lucky you are to serve Hashem. What a joy and pleasure it is. There's no way around it. You're going to have to be happy when you're serving Hashem. Serving Hashem comes with joy. Absolutely. But what about other times? But even one who is occupied in business and worldly affairs, should there descend sadness upon him, any sadness or anxiety about heavenly matters during his business affairs? Okay, so you might think that this is the truly proper time. You're in the middle of cooking dinner. You're in the middle of taking, cleaning the house. You're in the middle of doing your work. You're a lawyer, you're preparing your case, whatever you're busy with at that time. You're busy with your work and suddenly you feel sadness. You're not feeling sadness because you can't cover the banks. And you're not feeling sadness because your toe hurts. And you're not feeling sadness because your child is rude to you. You're feeling sadness because of a spiritual reason. You suddenly remember that you did something that you shouldn't have done. This sounds like the most opportune moment to be sad. And the altar is going to explain to us that no, this is not the right time to be sad. You should know, be a dua. Shehu tachbulas haigeter, kedei lahapiloi achar kach betaivis chas It is certainly a trick of the evil inclination which saddens him, ostensibly for spiritual reasons, in order to lure him afterwards into lusts, God forbid, as is well known. So take this principle to mind. You're in the middle of doing your work. So you're, you're not in the middle of prayer. You're not in the middle of Torah study. You're not in the middle of doing a mitzvah. You're not lighting Shabbos candles. You're not shaking a little of an esrug. There's no prescribed mitzvah going on over here. You're just going about your daily business. Suddenly you feel so holy and spiritual. You feel holy and spiritual because you're suddenly sad. And why are you sad? You're sad because of a sin. Guess what? The same Yetzer Hara, the same evil inclination that got you to sin, is the same evil inclination that is making you sad about the sin. This is just another form of unholiness, so don't fall into this trap. It is man's nature to seek pleasure and not to remain depressed. If his feeling of spiritual failure distresses him, he will seek his 
pleasure in self-physical gratification. The evil inclination therefore wishes that he be depressed, be it even over spiritual matters, so that he will later succumb to temptation. So this is an important principle. A person wants to be having enjoyment. A person wants gratification. A person wants pleasure. So if they are not feeling pleasure, then they're going to reach for chocolate or they're going to start gossiping and putting somebody down or something other sin because they want a quick pick-me-up. That's just how it works. The author of a senior colleague, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Mivitebsk, wrote in his book, Priha Aretz, that this is an important principle you have to understand. It is very, very important to be sameach bechalko, happy with your lot, even when it comes to spiritual reasons, because your soul seeks gratification. And in a letter to one of his students, the grandson of the Alter Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, wrote, because the student was complaining, he said, I have stray thoughts and I don't know how to be rid of them. And he said, you must take joy in serving Hashem because your soul seeks pleasure. If you're not getting pleasure from the good places, you're going to look for pleasure in bad places, God forbid. It's very, very important to find happiness and enjoyment when you're serving Hashem. And therefore, if suddenly you're feeling spiritual because you're feeling sad about a sin, this is not spiritual. This is bad. This is the ruse of the Yetzer Hara. He wants to make you sad because he knows that your default is looking for pleasure. And as soon as you're sad, he's going to get you to do something bad because you're already in the dumps. You know the story of the man who wears sackcloth because he's trying to feel really holy and do some self-mortification. And he goes to visit a tzaddik. And out from his shirt is peeking just a little bit of sackcloth so the tzaddik should know how pious he is. And... He appears before the tzaddik and the tzaddik looks at him and he says, oh, how clever he is. Oh, how clever, how very, very clever. He repeats himself a few times until the guy is forced to ask, who is so clever? And he said, your Yetzer Hara, who got, took a man like you and stuck him in a sackcloth. So the Yetzer Hara is very, very clever. And sometimes he takes a person and makes them depressed about sins. The person thinks they're holy, but they're not being holy. They're just falling for another form of unholiness. Now he's going to explain to us how we know that this indeed comes from the klipa. She'im le'kain, me'ayin ba'alai atzvos amitis, machmas avas Hashem ayir asay be'emta asakav. For if this were not so, that this depression is the doing of the yetzer hara, whence would a genuine sadness, one that is derived from love or fear of God, come to him in the midst of his business affairs? Since a genuine sadness is an expression of love or fear of God, it should express itself at a time when these emotions are active, during prayer, Torah study, and the like, but not during one's business. Clearly then, the sadness is artificial, created by the Yetzir Hara for its own purposes, and one must therefore be rid of it. Okay? If you're feeling sadness over sins, it had to have come from a genuine place. How are you suddenly getting genuine sadness over sins in the middle of business? Were you meditating upon Hashem's greatness? Were you feeling an infusion of love and awe for Him that suddenly you're feeling sad about sins? You don't just have a cake baked in the oven if you didn't first mix the ingredients. A house doesn't just build itself. You know how the little kids say, you know, I just knew it by myself. You didn't just know it by yourself. There always has to be, the, res the result is always a product of something else. 
Your cake didn't just bake itself. It's a product of somebody working on mixing ingredients first. A house doesn't build itself. It's a result of somebody building a house. Sadness over sins doesn't come spontaneously. It comes after feeling love and fear for Hashem. It comes for suddenly being pained at distance from Him. If it's coming upon you spontaneously, this is a trick of the Yetzir Hara. We need to understand that there's two forms of spiritual sadness or sadness over sins. There's the one sadness over sins that is thinking about Hashem. It's Hashem-based. That means that the person thinks about Hashem and they suddenly feel how so distant they are from Him. And the distance from Hashem pains them and anguishes them. That's one form of sadness over sin. The other form of sadness over sin seems not to be so different, but it is utterly different. And this sadness is ego-based. How did I fall so low? How did I ever do such a thing? Oh, it's terrible. That's not about Hashem anymore. Now it's about you. And when it's about you, it's bound to get you even lower. There's a great story I heard yesterday about a group of 15 and 16 year old yeshiva students, probably like 30 or 40, no more, like 50 years ago. And they were privileged to have their first Hasidic Farbringen with Rav Yoel Khan, a very big Hasidic teacher, very famous. They were so excited. They're going to get to sit with Rabbi Yoel and he's going to farbring with them. So they sit around the table and one of the Bachrim, the yeshiva student says, Ich bin, and he uses, he says, I am, and he uses a Yiddish expression to mean a low life. I'm a low life. That's how he starts the farbringen. And Rabbi Yoel looks at him and he says, that's for me to say. And the message of the story is, it's very nice that you sit there and you feel really holy and you put yourself down and you say, I'm a lowlife. But you know what's happening when you're saying I'm a lowlife? It's all about your ego. It's all about me. It's not about you. It's about Hashem. When a person feels sad about a sin, it's not ego-based. It shouldn't be that I feel so low. I'm a lowlife. How did I fall to this? That's not what it's about. What it's about is Hashem, how great He is. His whole presence fills the world. He wants to have a relationship with me. He gives me an opportunity. And yet, I set up a partition between him and me. That's a reason to feel sad. It's not about us. It's about Hashem. Now the Alt-Rebbe is going to give us advice. He explained to us, even when it comes from sins, even when it comes from a true reason, we cannot be sad. And he's going to give us a, a, reason, a way how to get rid of it. Vihine. Whether the depression settles upon him during his service of God in Torah study or prayer, or when he is not engaged us, but with his material fears, this is what he should consider. He ain't has man grama now is not the proper time for genuine sadness, nor even for worry over grave sins, God forbid. Okay, so this is the advice, and he says, he uses words that make it strong. He says, Zeis Yasim Alibai, take this to heart, get this in your head, know this. This is a principle, and get it well. Like we say, there's a, a Talmudic expression, Nikait Hai Kalabiyadcha, take this rule in your hand, know this principle, put it in your head. You need to know whenever this just comes to you, when spontaneous sadness just falls upon you, the way to do it is right away you say, now is not the time. You give it the cold shoulder. You quit cold turkey. 
You don't start engaging in a conversation. Oh, I know where you come from. You come from the Sahara. It's just a contriving going on. No dialogue. It's a quick and cold conversation. Now is not the time. And even he even worry for grave sins. Rak lazais tsarach kvias item ushas akaisher beyishav hadas les bainis his bainim begduas Hashem asher chatelai. For this, one must set a time aside opportune times when the mind is calm to reflect on the greatness of God against whom he has sinned. You want to be sad about sins? You're right. Sins are a real reason to be sad. But you can't just spontaneously be sad. That's not how it works. Whenever it comes upon you, you need to say, now is not the time. There is a time for that. And the time for that, you, for this you need an opportune time. What's the time for that? We discussed last class that the time for this is Tikkun Chatzais. Nowadays, people don't practice Tikkun Chatzais, but Tikkun Chatzais is a midnight lament over the destruction of the Holy Temple. Now, the destruction of the Holy Temple, mourning the destruction over the Holy Temple, is not just mourning the physical structure of the Temple. It's mourning the destruction, the exile of the Shekhinah. We're mourning the fact that our divine soul is in exile under the dominion of the animal soul. The destruction of the temple is about the destruction of Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim mystically also stands for Yir Ashalim, complete faith, fear of Hashem. A person who is sad, who is mourning the destruction of the temple, is mourning the state of the exile of the Shekhinah, that their divine soul has been dragged so low and is now under the dominion of the animal soul. Nowadays that people don't practice Tikkun Chatzais, the proper time for thinking about sins is at bedtime Shema. And even this, the Rebbe Rashab writes, is not supposed to be on a nightly basis. In the olden days, people were more emotionally hardy and they could do this on a nightly basis. Nowadays, we have to recognize people are not that emotionally hardy. We're not cut out for it. So every once in a while, at bedtime Shema, a person has to then go into his planned sadness. What does planned sadness look like? Let's look at the words of the Alter Rebbe over here. He says, Be'yishuv hada'as, with a calm mind. And why does he stress a calm mind? And that's because some people are more prone to sadness. Some people are more prone to melancholy. And so while normally they divert their attention, they understand that when sadness spontaneously comes upon them, they should say, now is not the time, and they quit it cold turkey. But when it comes to plant sadness, then they just let it come on. They're like, bring it on, and they fall prey to their animal soul. That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is with a calm mind. Do whatever you need to do to be calm. Take your deep breaths. Do your, your focus exercises. Be in a state calm of mind. And then how do we do it? It's, again, not ego-based. He says over here, Meditate upon the greatness of God against whom you have sinned. So this is what it looks like, okay? It's at bedtime Shema, not on a nightly basis, and once in a great while. And the person calmed themselves down. They took their deep breaths. They put themselves in a calm state of mind. And all of a sudden, they go into a meditation. What is the meditation? They're not meditating about themselves. They're meditating about Hashem. What do they think about Hashem? They think about the greatness of Hashem. That all of existence, all of the world, are as nothing before Him. And the entire world is filled with His glory. And all of existence is pervaded by Hashem. Hashem is standing right in front of Him. 
And not just that, but here's a wild idea. A person has to realize that Bishvili nivra ha'olam, like the Talmud says, the world was created for my sake. And one of the implications of this is that Hashem wants specifically this person's service. So when a person thinks like this, they say, Hashem is the only existence. All of existence is nothing. The entire world is filled with His glory. I'm always standing in the presence of Him. And not just am I standing in the presence of Him, but He wanted a relationship with me. Hashem gave me Torah and mitzvahs, and Hashem specifically relies on me to call Him King. And yet with all of that, with the love that He showed me, and the connection that He wants with me, and the relationship that He wants, the person thinks that they set a partition between them and Hashem. They looked Hashem in the eye, and they did exactly the opposite of what Hashem asked them to do. They took Hashem's love and they put it behind them. And that's painful. And that breaks a person's heart. Kadesh al Oh, Adi, you had a question? So the right time to feel the sadness is once in a while at Kriyat Shema Sha'al Hamita, bedtime Shema. Before going to sleep, people say Shema Yisrael, Shema Kino Shemachad. It's actually a longer prayer than that, but everybody does whatever they can do at that time. At that time, before going to bed, is the proper time for this kind of meditation. And again, it should not be on a nightly basis. It has to be once in a while. But it's, that's the good time. It's like at the end of the day, it's a good time to take an accounting of the, that day, of that week, of that month, or some serious sin that's weighing on a person's heart. You know, sometimes a person has something serious weighing on their consciousness a lot. Instead of letting it plague their mind 24-7, give it attention, but at the right time. It shouldn't be a nagging voice in the back of your head, always, 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 constantly draining energy and sucking from you. No, no. It's a good reason to be sad. It's a serious sin and it weighs on your consciousness. But get it out of your head. You're not getting it out of your head totally until you deal with it. You will deal with it. At one point, you're going to look at it at the face. You're going to look at it in the face. And that's going to be on occasion at bedtime Shema. Before Shema or after the Shema prayer, when you were focusing on Hashem and meditating about Hashem and realizing the distance that you created and the boo-boo that you made, at that point is a time to feel broken about the sin. And the Altarab is going to describe that. Kadesh Ayyad... So it's the same concept though. Hitbodidut is about meditation and having alone time with Hashem. So I guess the difference is that originally it was on a daily basis, except in today's generation it's not recommended every day. Hitbodidut is recommended every single day, but not being sad about sins. Sad about sins is not recommended every day anymore. 
Hitbodidut is recommended every day. Forge your relationship with Hashem. Think about Him. Meditate on Him. But not every time should this be about sins. Every once in a while is when you do the sin. Is when you think about the sins. Okay. So that thereby his heart will be truly rent with genuine bitterness, meaning bitterness, remorse, as opposed to depression. The former is alive and active, while the latter is resigned and dead. It is explained elsewhere when this time should be. And we just discussed that. And that's Tikkun Chatzais, and now time it's bedtime Shema. So what he says is that after you do this meditation about Hashem, and think about how you sinned against Him, what's going to happen? Your heart's going to be broken. Truly broken. But then he uses a different term. He says, with genuine bitterness. There's a difference between bitterness and sadness. We will visit this more deeply in chapter 31. But sadness is a dead feeling. When a person feels sad, they feel helpless. They can't move. They feel stuck. They're just not motivated at all. Bitterness is something different. Bitterness is actually more close to joy than it is to sadness. Bitterness stems from the holy givurot, the holy severities, and that is a feeling of energy. Like, for example, God forbid a person suddenly finds himself in an emergency situation. God forbid there's a fire. Are they just feeling like stuck on the couch, I can't move? No, that's not the feeling here. Suddenly they're energized and they're running about in a frenzy doing whatever they can to save themselves. That's what bitterness is. Bitterness is energy. A person meditates about Hashem. They feel the distance that they cause between themselves and Hashem. That breaks their heart and suddenly they feel bitter. They're like, I'm getting out of here. I'm doing something different. I'm going to change. I'm going to be better. That's what happens when a person does the proper meditation and breaks their heart, the feeling afterwards of sadness is only momentary. After that, it is followed by bitterness. There is also explained that immediately after his heart has been broken during those appointed times, he should completely remove the sorrow from his heart. Okay, so a person did the proper teshuva. They felt sad. They were broken. That's it. Time to wash up and move on. What happens is, after a person feels sad, their Yetzirah wants them to stay in a state of sadness. So the Yetzirah gives them doubt. Maybe you didn't do a good job. Maybe you don't actually really care that you sinned. Maybe Hashem didn't forgive you. That's the Yetzirah. You should know that after you took the proper steps, you need to trust that the sadness that you felt was true, that it really did bother you, and you should know that Hashem forgave you. And he should believe with perfect faith that God has erased his sin and that he pardons abundantly. Thus, even if one has sinned repeatedly against him, God will readily forgive him as though he had sinned for the first time, unlike Man who easily forgives a first offense but finds it difficult to do so when the offense is oft repeated. So a person has to believe with perfect faith that Hashem pardons his sins. The problem with us is that we look at Hashem from our own frame of reference and we take the way we feel and we think Hashem is that way. So a person, a per, you know, somebody does something wrong. So they say, I'm sorry, you forgive them. The fifth time, the hundredth time, you're not really that ready to forgive them. 
But Hashem is not like that. Hashem, we praise Him for being ravelous leach, pardons generously. He forgives abundantly. We're always looking at things from our own frame of reference. You know, like my little kid said to me, Yaha, I know who Siri is. They took Syria and they quished her in the computer. <laughs> Or my mother-in-law says that when she was a little girl and their radio broke, so they had to get a repairman. And as they were unscrewing the front cover of the huge radio box, she was waiting for all the little people to come marching out. Why? Because a little kid associates a voice with a person. Automatically, they think that if there's a voice, there has to be a person because they don't have a bigger frame of reference. Us too, we're very small-minded. We don't realize just because somebody keeps doing the same thing to us again and again, it's harder to forgive for Hashem whose kindness is infinite, there's no difference between the first time and the thousandth time. We need to trust completely that Hashem pardons generously and that He truly forgave us. And with this, we should find joy. You know, a person once wrote to the Rebbe about being joyful even when he does Teshuvah. He was having a hard time. And the Rebbe said to him, here's two reasons why you should be joyful. One reason is, and I bet you never thought about this, you should be joyful that Hashem illuminated your mind and your heart to know that you should do Teshuvah. Sometimes people do the wrong thing and they don't even know that they should be doing teshuva. The fact that you feel like you should be doing teshuva, that should already bring you joy. Hashem has given you illumination. He illuminated your mind and your heart and you know you should do teshuva. For that reason, you should be happy. And then of course, the other reason to be happy is because you should know that Hashem forgives you. Dance because Hashem forgave you. This knowledge that Hashem has surely cleansed them of his sins is true joy in Hashem, which follows the sadness. As explained above, that the advantage of sadness lies in the joy to which it gives rise. So after a person is sad, remember, the only reason why they should ever be sad is so that they can be happy afterwards. You should have complete faith that Hashem forgave you. You shouldn't think my tshuva wasn't genuine. You shouldn't think Hashem didn't forgive me. You have to know 100% Hashem forgave you. Now that you know Hashem forgave you, you should be so happy. That was the only reason why you were sad. You were only sad so that you can allow for the happiness afterwards. And the happiness that you feel afterwards is even greater than the happiness that you had before. This is the advantage of sadness that follows, of happiness, of joy that follows sadness. This is the advantage of light that follows darkness. And I'm going to tell a story that I heard. So here's a story about Rabbi Cohen from Montreal. He, was a, he is a shliach and he was dealing with young teenagers back in the 70s. One group that he was dealing with, a group of friends, their fathers were not Jewish. And none of them had a bris milah. And he was trying to convince them, it's very important, you're part of the Jewish people. A Jewish person should have a bris. One of them said, you know what? Fine. You think I should have a bris? I'll have a bris. If you pay me $500. So the rabbi said, okay, I'll give you $500 if you have a bris. So the guy went through the bris, but before the bris, he made an announcement. He said, I just want you to know that the only reason why I'm having this bris is because I want $500. Rabbi Cohen lost touch with this man. Like three years ago, he found out where he is. Do you know where he is? This man did complete teshuva. He became a rabbi and he is a Chabad emissary in Russia. And all these years, he carries the pain and regret in his heart that before he had a bris mila, he said, I'm only doing this for $500. So do you know what he did? He took it upon himself for the $500 that he will get 500 people 
to do a bris milah. And as of last year, he was up to 180. So this is light that comes from darkness. And this is joy that comes from sadness. So let's sum up this chapter. We said that in order to win the battle of life, you have to be happy. Joy is an absolute necessity. But what if a person can't feel happy? There will be two reasons why they can't feel happy. Either it's from material concerns. If they're feeling sad because of material concerns, they should understand that when they're going through hardships, Hashem has brought them exceptionally close. And they should feel joy in affliction because they were taken into Hashem's inner circle and Hashem has shown them intimacy. And for that, they should find joy. And a person who does indeed align themselves with this consciousness of the unmanifest world, in the time to come, when the unmanifest world will be revealed, they will be rewarded with seeing the sun as it goes out in its full strength. They will be feeling the goodness from the unmanifest world in a way that truly feels as good. And the other reason why a person might feel sad is because of sins that they committed. If a person is sad because of sins, true, that's a reason to be sad. And yet, you can't be sad about it. If a person is in the middle of serving Hashem, if they're davening, if they're learning, if they're doing a mitzvah, for sure they can't be sad at that time because if you Hashem v'simcha, you must serve Hashem with joy. Absolutely, that is not the time. But even if you're in the middle of business, if you're in the middle of your just regular everyday affairs, and suddenly you're feeling sad about your sin, you should know that the sin is coming from the Yetzir Hara. And what do you need to say? Now is not the time. You just divert attention from the sin. When is the right time? Every once in a while, at bedtime Shema, a person should concentrate. This is not an ego-based meditation. It's a God-based meditation. They should think about Hashem's greatness and against who they sinned. And at that time, their heart will feel broken and they will feel bitter. As soon as they feel the bitterness over their sin, as soon as they do teshuva, they should then be happy and they should know that Hashem has totally and completely forgiven them. So this is the end of the chapter. I see one more question here. Is it a sin to feel sadness and remorse, even if it comes from the evil inclination? And in the introduction to this chapter, we quoted for the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov said that although sadness is not a sin, it can drag a person worse down than any sin can. The Alter Rebbe writes in a mimer, a story or the predicament of a soul that for many generations could not find peace. It could not find rectification. And how did it manage to fall so low? Because the person first violated a minor rabbinic prohibition. And then he fell into a depression because of that. And once he did that, he committed worse and worse sins until he com- committed such terrible sins that he couldn't even find rect- rectification for many generations. And here's another question. If, if, is it a sin to feel sadness and remorse? Even because, okay, if the idea that Hashem shows you intimacy when you are sad and you are closest to Him, what does it mean that when you feel happiness towards Hashem? Is that the same closeness? So we didn't say that a person feels intimacy when you are sad. We said that a person is showing, shown intimacy from Hashem when they are going through hardship. The sadness is the person's choice. It's not Hashem that made the person sad. It was the person that is choosing the mood to be sad. Even if you feel like, I don't have a choice, I have to be sad, you have to remember your transcendent essence gets to choose your moods. People don't realize that. They think that moods happen to them. It's not true. It's true that some moods are harder to move out of than others. I'm sorry to give you tough love, but I just want tough love. But I want to tell you as it is, your transcendent essence gets to choose your moods. If you're sad, you're allowing the sadness 
to happen to you. You don't have to allow sadness to happen to you. You get to choose happiness. So Hashem is not giving you sadness. Hashem is giving a person challenging situations. And even in the challenging situations, the person gets to choose joy. Is it easy? No. Sometimes it is unbelievably difficult. We're not saying it's easy. But we are saying that it is a choice. Okay. I don't see any more questions over here. Anybody who's muted, it's not on purpose. So if you had a question, feel free to ask a question verbally or you can always put it on the chat. Cheryl, I was expecting a question from you. I'll tell you what I was expecting you to ask. I was expecting Cheryl to ask when we got to the fact that a person cannot spontaneously feel sadness when they're during business, right? We said, if you're in the middle of your everyday business, how could you suddenly feel sadness? It has to be, you have to first feel love and fear of Hashem in order to feel sadness. But we learned in chapter 18 that a person naturally, thank you, Joni, that a person naturally has a love and fear of Hashem. So maybe it's coming from their natural love and fear of Hashem. And the answer is no. The natural love and fear of Hashem that we have within us lies dormant unless we tuned into it. So if you're spontaneously feeling sad and you didn't tune into it, that's a red flag. You should know that it's not coming from a holy place. It's coming from your Yitzhahara. And then another thing is, the Mishnah in Avais says, Every single day, a heavenly voice goes forth from Mount Chorev, which is Har Sinai, and says, Woe to them, to the creatures, for the insults to the Torah. What's the point of such an announcement if nobody hears it? And the Baal Shem Tov speaks about it, and the Baal Shem Tov says that indeed, our soul does hear it. And when our soul hears this announcement, it is motivated to do teshuva. So what if we're in the middle of cooking and suddenly you feel sad? Maybe our voice, our neshama suddenly heard the voice. And the answer is no. And the reason that we know that is because the voice that motivates us to do teshuva does not cause us agony over sins. The voice that motivates us to do teshuva gives us strength for the future. It gives us resolve to be better. It's about the future. It's not agony over the past. So that's for that. <laughs> Sorry for asking questions for you, Cheryl. You were just way too quiet, and I was sure you were going to ask. Okay, I'm going to stay on if anybody has questions for the next few minutes and, and otherwise. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Yeah. Thank you for that. We're in an active relationship. It's not just passive. And we find ourselves at the end of something. No, Hashem wants us. And remarkably so. It's just that alone is a reason to start dancing. <laughs>